It's another week and another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is episode 603. And in it, I have the most incredible conversation with David Darmanin. He's one of the founders of Hotjar. And I had not realized that Hotjar had been bootstrapped to 40 million in ARR, 170 employees, fully distributed team, and that they had exited for an obviously incredible sum at that ARR. It's definitely a, we're looking at a nine-figure exit. But what I hadn't realized is that they had bootstrapped the company and so much of the early marketing was D2C. It was direct-to-consumer approaches with their launch and even with the way they thought about it in the early days. So I was honestly blown away by David's approach to entrepreneurship. I'm so I'm just so surprised he hasn't been on my radar before as a bootstrapped SaaS founder who almost immediately struck me as one of us, you know, someone who might listen to this podcast or someone who should attend a microconf. And, and after we recorded this episode, I actually asked him straight up. I was like, you and I need to meet at some point. Would you come to a microconf if there was one near you? So I, I think that there is a future with David because the amount of wisdom he has and his his posture of learning, if you, when you listen through this interview, just all the books he names and he just, he wouldn't know a subject. So he'd go read all the books on the subject and it's books by Seth Godin and a lot of classic books, Selling the Invisible, a lot of classic books that we talk about in our circles. It was such a good conversation. I actually let it run long, as you'll notice by the episode length. I honestly didn't want it to end. But before we dive into that, I want to jog your memory for episode 569 of this podcast, which came out last September. It's called The Life-Changing Decision of When to Sell Your Company. It was with Anna Mast, who started Boondockers Welcome with her mom. And Microcomp played a big role in her deciding not to sell the company. And then she later sold it for an incredible sum. And she has been interviewed on another show. It's called They Got Acquired. We will link that up in the show notes. But I never tire of hearing Anna's story because it is so inspiring for someone to have done this on the side while raising kids, as so many of us have done, and to have had such an exciting journey and for it to have ended the way it did. And uh, Anna actually recently did an attendee talk at MicroConf here in Minneapolis, and it was great to finally meet her in person. So if you haven't checked out Anna Mass' episode here, 569, should, as well as her episode on the new podcast, They Got Acquired. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with David Darmanin of Hotjar. David, thanks so much for joining me on Startup for the Rest of Us. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, especially having seen your story and how much we have in common. <laughs> I know. I am so happy to have you here. You are quite the success story, having built Hot Jar, effectively bootstrapped to 40 million ARR, and then you sold it last year. 170 employees, 100% distributed, which when you started it in 2014, was still, a, you know, we did that with Drip, and, but a lot of people weren't doing that. You know, a lot of people were building their companies in an office or with a, with a couple different offices. Before I get into it, I want to, like, if people haven't heard of Hotjar, your H1 is understand how users behave on your site, what they need, and how they feel fast. So it's behavioral analytics, you can screen recordings of, of customers, heat maps, that type of stuff. We actually used it at Drip. 
And this is the definition for me of mostly bootstrapped. On this show a lot, I say bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped startups. Because you brought in $300,000 of your own money and your ex-boss, who you brought in as, as you said, the entrepreneur in residence, put in 400000 So you did have some capital to start. But my understanding is you didn't raise any capital after that. And to build a business on seven hundred k of your own money, not outside funding, to $40 million, and then to exit, and I know your purchase price isn't public, but I'm going to, you know, for, for listeners... It depends on growth and stuff, but pretty easily four to eight times ARR. So we know this is hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd say it's pretty easy, a couple hundred million dollar exit. And again, you don't have to confirm or deny any of that. But I mean, that is an incredible, really an incredible journey. And unlike many others that I've heard, you know, I like MailChimp was was this massive mostly bootstrapped exit, but Hotjar has to be in the top 10 that I've heard about. It's, it's pretty incredible. I think a big piece to your story that is so unique, because we could honestly, we could record two hours here. There's so many interesting story arcs we could tell. An interesting part is that you brought a D2C approach to building a B2B business, a direct-to-consumer approach. Do you want to talk about, is that your CRO background that brought that in? And then maybe explain to folks how you approached building this B2B SaaS company as more of a direct-to-consumer marketer. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Just before I answer that question, I'll also clarify, because I think it's interesting from a bootstrapping point of view, how we finance the business as well, to clarify a little bit that. So the, the figures that you mentioned actually didn't even come all at one go. So the format was, and I think this was something that resonated a lot when I heard your your talk, which is I was working as a consultant. I was making really good money, but I just it, it wasn't fun. I wasn't enjoying it. I wanted to build equity. I wanted to build a product. But what I did was for the first six months of the business, I continued to work as a consultant and in parallel a CEO, but I invoiced all my clients through the business. So that was actually the first revenue. So that's where my share, the 200K came from, which is quite interesting. Then my ex-boss, Johan, he put in, I think it was around 200,000 only in the beginning. And that was it. Then later on, when I really felt the need to scale things up, we put in another round, which we never really needed or used, <laughs> which is quite because then we were profitable immediately. And I, I want to say that also because I don't want to give the impression that you need that amount of money to do this, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't really completely neat. A lot of it was, we're very lucky to have had that cash, to have saved it up. Um, and he was a successful entrepreneur, so that definitely helped. Coming back to your question about the direct-to-consumer, so there's two pieces to that. So first off, all the co-founders, we worked in Johan's business. So Johan employed me, and then I employed Jonathan and Mark, and then Eric was hired by someone else. I think the person who actually hired him then ended up joining Hodger as well, funny enough. But we were a, we were a direct-to-consumer company. So we were, we were making software for PCs back when smartphones didn't exist. So this was our bread and butter, what we knew. More importantly, none of us had any experience in B2B before. But I remember, I think that the key point for me was this like light bulb moment was uh, reading the essay by Paul Graham, which was even back then quite old, which spoke to the consumerization of enterprise. And the principles of this piece was that the way enterprise software is sold doesn't make any sense. And the more human way, right, that we sell consumer products is 
very likely going to kind of take that over. And when I read that, I was like, oh, because I feel this. And I had been through it as an executive in that first software company where buying software was just so horrible and we couldn't get access to it. So we built Hotjar in a way for ourselves five years back, but also building on that vision of what we knew was to come. And in fact, one of the most important premises that we had for building Hotjar for our success was not only the go-to-market strategy in the model, but also was a very basic premise that we we're going to build the best support that we possibly could, because we knew that that was such an important piece of selling in the way that we sold. Got it. And talk to me about that support piece. Like, did you just have a lot of really good customer support people or, or what was, I, I think concretely, like what was the biggest difference between you and, and your other competitors? So I was reading a lot of books around the time, which to be honest, I think in my previous job, I was speaking to the founders yesterday, a conversion rate experts who hired me. It was my first remote job. I remember landing this role and traveling to the UK and I was just so blown away that I had read no books compared to this crowd I was meeting. So I quickly made a list, started reading, and this had a huge, huge impact on me. And I think around this time I'd read Delivering Happiness, which had a really big impact on my mindset. And there was another book, Selling the Invisible. And it just made so much sense that really when you're building and selling something which is not really that tangible, okay, with Zappos it was more tangible, but especially in SaaS, the experience and the exchange and the relationship is is digital, right? So ultimately we decided that we would think about support in a different way. And we one of the very first things that we wrote, I think came before our values, was what we called our ethos. We wrote an ethos of how we behave with the customer. I think it's still public if someone had to Google for it, ethos Hodjar. And basically the principles spoke around things like very basic tactical things, right? Like say PM, deliver AM, right? Never overpromise. It's always our fault, right? And I think it culminated in like the users are gods. If they didn't put their trust in us, then we didn't, we didn't exist. Later, we translate this into a value we call respect. So it's absolute total respect that we're not a business just transacting. There are people at the other end of this, and we need to treat them with the right respect. So that, that I think, was the fundamental piece here. This week's sponsor is TrustShoring. TrustShoring helps you find reliable, pre-vetted developers or software development agencies. Turn to TrustShoring if you need to build an MVP, scale your team or product, or you have issues with your current developers or code base and need guidance on your SaaS journey. TrustShoring makes software development and remote hiring easy for all kinds of founders, technical and non-technical. Book a free, no-commitment call with TrustShoring CEO Victor Parolnik, who I've met at many microconfs. Visit TrustShoring.com to book that call. That's TrustShoring.com. So I, I have an ebook that I wrote called Start Marketing the Day You Start Coding. And the idea is always that, especially software developers, they go and they build in the basement for a year, then they come out and nobody wants their product because they didn't build a launch list. They didn't do any pre-marketing. And a, a big piece of that ebook is not only, I mean, these days I would almost call it start marketing before you start coding, right? I have a friend who launched this amazing SaaS company. He built the marketing website, started doing SEO 18 months before they were able to launch a product because SEO takes a long time. And I have always been a proponent of, even if I'm going to do a lot of customer development, have a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations, first thing I do when I have an idea is I get a landing page up. 
and I've sold pre-sold or, you know, built launch lists for downloadable software back in the day to 10, 12 years ago for SaaS. We did it for Drip for info products, courses. I did it for a book, Start Small, Stay Small. Microconf was literally a landing page before we had anything. Tiny Seed was a landing page before we had like a, a fund and all that. And, and a lot of people still don't do it. But you started with a landing page and you started marketing while folks were developing the alpha. And in fact, I think at some point, didn't you have 60,000 emails on a launch list? Yeah. And we were largely inspired by, at that time, it was Robin Hood who were doing this really, really effectively. I think it was around 2014. I remember years before I saw the Gmail launch with their beta that they did with the invite five people and everything. I was like, oh my God, this is like amazing. I want to run a beta one day. I never managed to do that. So I had read a lot about betas and how they runs and alpha. So that was quite interesting. I love doing research, you'll notice. So then when we came to launch Hotjar, there were two things that influenced us a lot. So one was a failed product that we had done before which was basically us being smart about what can we build that we can sell, right? So we were doing it completely the wrong way around. And we built a SaaS product for the retail and hospitality industry, which was like a loyalty program. Like it was building in all the marketing things that we had built over the years. We learned a lot doing this about what makes people act, like and what drives also, like how you can drive loyalty as well. But we had no idea how to sell this into home because we didn't know the industry at all. Right? So that was a that was a big mistake. But that that was number one, like very inspiring to us about how we do this. And number two, the research that I spoke about, so the whole beta thing. So what did we do? There were a few steps that we did. The first thing that we did actually, even before we started looking at an alpha, well, this is an interesting story, that I wanted to make sure, I was bringing people together, right, that were working on different projects. So I wanted to make sure that we could work together. So actually we built this very weird, stupid product, which is called Prioritizer. So basically it was this basic interface, which you input ideas and you vote on it, and it automatically prioritizes something for the group. So we built that very quickly. And the idea was that actually I wanted to see whether it was team fit, even before there was anything else. So we did team fit very quickly. Again, all of this is born from failures, right? I wanted to make sure I avoid previous failures. Having done that, we did two things in parallel. So Jonathan and I, Jonathan is the designer front end and I had background in design. We started building the interface of what it would look like and the landing page. So I'm drawing on my conversion rate CRO experience and the engineers started building the alpha. Is this actually possible? So by the time they had the answer, data-wise, right? Because Hodger processes a huge amount of data. So when we know that that was feasible to do this at scale and offering this to thousands of teams, we immediately pulled the trigger on the landing page, which said, here's what we're offering. Are you in? Right? And we did all of this that I mentioned within the span of, I think, around two months. So it's two months and it was done. And we immediately knew we were onto something because as soon as we shared this with some friends, we started seeing people come in that we didn't know, right? So names that we didn't know. So it was spreading, there was word of mouth. And it was at this point we knew that we were scratching an itch that many other people had. So how did you build up that list? Were you running running ads? Was it social stuff? Oh yes, SEO? that's a good point, yeah. 60,000. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, yeah. my biggest launch list ever, I think was 4,000 or something. And I, you know, I hustled at it. So, so I, I respect, a lot of respect for 60,000. Yeah, so I, I missed that important part of the question. So look, Johan and I, back in the previous company, we had done a lot of direct marketing. So we knew, we had a very good understanding of the fundamentals of the acquisition costs 
of a user or a customer. In this case, it wasn't customer. And also we had done so many ads at scale in that software business that we were doing a few years back, right? So having said that, Previously, we didn't have word of mouth. So this was kind of more of a, a direct selling, kind of direct marketing, selling software kind of thing. So what was interesting to us is that we were seeing word of mouth in this initial stages, right, of doing this, this program that we did. So we started to layer in some of the things that we learned from that previous failed product, right? So we had stuff like, if you recruit five friends, then you get X months free. If you recruit more friends, you get uh, a T-shirt. But then we also did, so those were fixed rewards. But then we also had more competitive rewards. So if you're in the top 20 of the list at the end of this, you get a lifetime account of Hardjar, which was for many agencies and people using software like this was like mind blowing, right? Contracts for this type of software were in the 30, 40, 60, 80K. So they were like, holy this is huge. So the perceived value was very, very, very high. And then we did other competitive kind of things as we went along. And we also told people on the list, we gave them ideas of what they could do, right? Send a blast to your email list write a blog post and then go promote it here. So we were literally like building like a marketing, like a, a team out there that were kind of promoting this for us. And we started to see that the word of mouth was working really well, but in tandem, we also deployed what we knew in paid. So I had done a lot of research about how paid works and I had studied some of the pioneers in this. Like when we think about books like advertising methods, right? Like from the 50s and 60s. And so I had read a lot about this. So I, like this was very easy for me to do on the side. So what did I do? I went to Facebook. I targeted the personas of who we were, right? The founders of Hardware, because that's who we were building it for. So digital marketers, product designers, product managers. And I started testing loads of different variations of ads. So we were very lucky that Facebook had quite recently started offering this, right? So it wasn't very competitive. It wasn't expensive. It was very easy to target large groups of people. So I tested different visuals, different ad copy, different positioning. And within two to three months, we had found this really, really effective ad uh, proposition. And then what we did was we took that and we went to Back then, there was already this feeling that email is kind of dead. <laughs> we knew that was not the case. I so remember. we went yep. yeah, to big publications that had huge email lists, right? So imagine Designer Monthly, for example, or Smashing Magazine and whatnot. And we went to them and said, hey, we've got this really valuable, interesting new product, which is on beta, right? So there's huge value to your readership. How much do we have to pay you to do an email blast to your whole list? And then we just started doing this over and over using that high performing ad from Facebook. And this just exploded. So we were buying, we weren't buying, right? But we were getting email signups at the cost of what? Five bucks, six bucks. So this was very, very effective. And then we also worked with platforms like Early Bird and Betalist. And we were also lucky because this was the, the year, I think that Product Hunt launched. So we were one of the very first self-hunted product hunts. So we layered a lot of these things. And then what I was also doing, I was writing an, a weekly email list to everyone on the list, telling them what we're working on, the internal workings, the challenges that we're facing. So rather than doing content, we were leveraging word of mouth, paid marketing, and then I don't know what you would call it, but 
sending emails to our group to kind of create this a little bit of a community, which helped again spread the word and and what more. So this this word of mouth, this kind of mobilizing the community, was always reducing that overall cost of getting that email, right? Which is the way we saw it more holistically. Right. And to do this and pull it off, A, you need to know your numbers. Like that's what so many people who who start to get into paid acquisition don't realize is that just hearing, oh, it's $10 a click for this or it's $2 a click. If you don't have an idea of what the rest of the funnel is going to look like, then you, you can't do this well at scale, right? And so you must have known in your head, if I can buy an email, not and again, you're not buying the email, but you're paying to get someone to opt in to an email list for $5, you know, that, that might sound really expensive to someone, like $5 just, just to be able to communicate with someone. But you must have had an idea, well, we're going to convert X percent. And then the lifetime, you know, we have the cash in the bank and the lifetime value is this and the virality, the viral loop that you added with the word word of mouth means if every email turns into three emails and I'm only paying $5 divided by three, is that, I mean, that's how I would think about it. Is that what you were thinking as you're doing this? That's a very good point. And interestingly, I've never covered this topic. So we've been interviewed a lot about this, but no one ever asked it about it. But you're right. Like we spent a lot of time back then. We literally drew out the funnel and we said, okay, what if we convert at 5%, right? And what if the lifetime value is this? And then we modeled out, okay, very low prices, but we'll do an upsell price. And let's say we can convert 20% of customers to the higher price. So we were very lucky in the way to know these fundamentals having run a direct-to-consumer business before to understand what that engine would look like. And then definitely takes the guts to also burn 10, 20,000 euros on first failing, right? So the ads are not going to work. And and also you need to push on some of these ads. You need to put money behind it before you start to see that conversion rate go up as well. So there's a little bit of that going on as well. Yeah. And you had a luxury with five people working on this product that you could focus yourself on all this marketing stuff, on sending a weekly email to a launch list. You know, I know a lot of solo founders and they're trying to build the product and they're trying to kind of support early users and they're trying to get marketing going. And it's it's definitely a challenge. And so I can see if you're working with high performing people, if your founding engineers are really solid, that there is an advantage of you being able to focus full time on marketing. Because this all sounds, it sounds like a lot of work and it sounds, I'll say complicated. I know it's not. So I've done a lot of this stuff. I haven't done the viral thing you did, which I think is brilliant. But all the other stuff I... I have. I've run ads at at decent scale, and I know that it is like a part time job, if not more, just to keep those things running. And because they burn out, and you got to re- recycle the audience, you know, it's not set and forget. And then you send in an email every week. It's like that's not twenty minutes of work. That's half a day, maybe a full day if you're putting graphics in, if you're doing screenshots, if you're doing a screencast, like whatever it is. But that's seems like you're being able to dedicate that time and expertise. Because I often talk about it like success is hard work, luck, and skill. And I know you said you got a little lucky, but I think you put in a ton of hard work. And I think you had a ton of skills that you had built, you know, from these prior experience as a marketer and a product person. And when it came down to it, I have a number here that after adding a paywall, you get this big list that you wound up closing like 5% of the initial launch list to convert it to paid. Is that, is that your recollection? Yeah, it's complicated. And back then we didn't spend a lot, and I'm glad that we did. We didn't spend a lot of time on measuring these things to the absolute detail. There's a lot of faith in these things would work out. In later cohorts, we knew we were converting at around 5 to 7%. I suspect from that initial group, we probably converted even higher, but I suspect we also churned 
more of them quicker. But we don't care about that because that was our initial group. Yeah, and we consider this to be the wave that really created the brand that is Hotjar that then lasted for years, right? Still till today. Because then there's many other things that we did, right? That I think were very smart. Like anyone who was in the beta and became a customer, we made the, we put them on our founding list, for example. We put a page with their names. And then when we went live, there was a lot of initiatives and things that we did. We really, I think that initial philosophy of taking care of the user and thinking about them, like really was effective. Like a small detail, anyone who made a suggestion or reported a bug, we would personally get back to them and thank them when we either fixed it or actually did it. So this was something that we insisted upon. It was just so effective. And, and I want to call out to listeners that when we watch these launches, whether it's Apple doing it, whether it's Superhuman, the way that they built up their big launch list, Robinhood, like you said, Mint.com was similar back in the day. They don't happen by accident. It's not luck. It's a ton of work. And just hearing you talk about it, I want people to understand it because there are some folks, you know, our audience is, let's say, 75% developers, maybe 80%. And I'm a software developer as well. I don't write much code anymore. But I, I know that back in the day, I felt like the hard work of doing this was building the product. And that I would look at People like Robinhood or Mint or, you know, Hotjar get this momentum and I would think, well, I guess they got lucky. Maybe I'll kind of try to replicate, kind of try to replicate what they did, not realizing you were probably putting 40, 60 hours a week in, plus um, I bet your co-founder was working. I mean, this is a true months and hundreds and hundreds of person hours to get this kind of result. Oh, I think you can double those hour numbers. I think the first few months, because again, keep in mind, so my role was, I was like, so I was kind of CEO at that size, doesn't make sense. It was more of like a product team, right? So I was kind of the product owner, although Jonathan was more than the product manager. He took on more because that was complicated. And then I was running marketing. Johan was doing all the buying, the media buying, but he was also helping with the product strategy and all that stuff. And then we were all doing support, right? All of us. And, and I was also consulting <laughs> on the side to keep that money coming in. So this was six, nine months of like 80 hour weeks, including the weekends, Jeez. everyone, all of us. Yeah. But we knew this was the price we knew we had to pay if we were going to bootstrap this, right? Right. The good thing I think that we did is we sat down and we said, okay, are we ready to do this together? Right. And we knew that there was very, very good team spirit at this point of let's do this together. The goal is very clear. What we're trying to do is very clear. Yeah, it worked out very well. Yeah, yeah, it's obvious. And and I've had seasons of 60, 70 hour weeks, but I know there is season. Usually it's a month or two. You did it for <laughs> you did 80 for six to nine months. And I know that must have been really tough, but you weren't going to do it for 10 years. And you knew that you knew it was going to be a big push and that you'd be able to back off. Yeah, but but I would go I would go as far as saying back then it was so easy to work those hours. Like comparing, for example, to last year, that was so easy because none of us had ever experienced anything like this before, right? Because when you have sixty thousand on the list, like we built this little dashboard that updated and everything, it was so clear that we had product market fit from a concept point of view. And you're right, yes, we worked our asses off, but if the luck is not there, right? There's been studies about this. Timing is, is the highest, I believe, contributing factor towards success in a startup. And we, the timing for us was just absolutely brilliant, right? So like all the incumbents were still selling at very high prices with sales approach. There was no, when you think about it, it's crazy that in 2014, this industry, there was no like, product-led approach. So just wait another year and that was out, right? So 
there was just so many emails and inbounds and just people emailing us, agency saying, how do we get in? People want to invest. It was just insane. So the energy right behind this, it was, it was easy. But yeah, we wouldn't have managed to do this for much longer. And I want to call out to listeners, you know, often on this podcast, I talk about how selling a low price product, $20, $30 a month, you're not going to get to millions or tens of millions in ARR. And it's not a hard and fast rule, but it means if you're going to do it, you need to have massive volume. And you proved the market out in advance. You, you had tens of thousands of people on an email list, 60,000 folks. If you had done all that work and had gotten 3,000 people, the business would have been fine. You know, you would have had a few hundred customers. It would have been okay. It would have been an okay, I'll say a mediocre SaaS business because the pricing's too low. But when you have that wide of a funnel or that large of an audience and you're as good a marketer as you and your co-founders are, that's when you can make a low-priced product work. And I think fundamentally that is what led to the successful recipe that is Hotjar, which is I mentioned that previous software that we built for the hospitality and retail industry. And it took us months. We're building this product and building and building. And then we realized, crap, there's a there's a winner here already in this category. In the US, there's put ton of money, they're massive brand, huge. And then I, I think at the same time I read the book The Dip by Seth Godin, right, which speaks about this, that the first, second, three place in the category are the big winners. And I suddenly realized we weren't thinking big enough. It was as simple as that. And we had to think much, much bigger, but play to our strengths. And I think that's where I suddenly realized I'm using these tools to try and build these <laughs> new products. But actually, what I should be is disrupting the tools that I know so well. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that want to use. And I love that you keep referencing, I read a book, I read this book, I did this research, I read the Paul Graham essay, because I'm exactly the same way. I'm looking at my Audible library, 782 titles in my Audible, because that's what I, I, I'm an audio person, right? You know, some of them are my kids, probably a hundred of them, but I, and I have listened to them. If I don't, if I don't listen to them, I, I get rid of them. So it's, I'm exactly the same way when I want, when I wanted to learn Facebook ads back in 2011, 12 for a, a my SaaS was called Hittail back then. I went and I bought every ebook. I bought every course. I read every blog post that you could find in the first five pages of Google about how to run Facebook ads. And then I dove in and did it and, you know, and it worked and I was willing to grind it out for, like you said, willing to risk a few thousand bucks, willing to risk, you know, hundreds of hours of my time. And so I, I like that to me, it's a, maybe it's a, it's a bootstrapper ethos or maybe it's just a founder ethos of being willing to dive in and learn things that, that you don't know and then Figure execute well. Yep. Yep. I love it. So you grew to a million ARR six months after your beta launch. Then from 2015 to 2016, you went from 1 million to 3 million ARR. Really fast growth. Um, I think I'm getting these from Built to Sell. If I So my producer listened to your interview on Built to Sell. And shout out to John Warlow. He's actually who connected us. I love what, what John's up to. And uh, you know I appreciate the connection because he said, he said, David is an amazing founder, has an amazing story. And I was like, well, and he's SaaS, right? So it's right in the wheelhouse of this. So I appreciate that. But that growth from... Obviously, the 60,000-person email list got you maybe to that initial million, but then you tripled again in less than a year. What were you doing there? Was it just more of the same? Was it, was it ads? Was it virality? Like, what, you know, what was the playbook? Yeah, look, classic advertising principles, right? More of the same. 
So we just kept on doing more of the same, making it more sophisticated. Then I introduced this very simple way to run the business. I love simplicity, right, as a true product design person. So what we did was we created a very simple spreadsheet, month by month, which lists income and expenses. And then we had a forecast, very rudimentary forecast of our MRR. And then I introduced something which we still use till today, which is we had a profitability goal for the year, right? So we'd say this year we want to have 90%, right? So 10% EBITDA. I'm just inventing that as a number. And then the Google Sheets would automatically attribute the 90% to our expenses in terms of budgets, right? So 90% of the MRRs now... Then I split that and I did some research about typically how much I spent on product marketing and SaaS product, and I allocated that per department, which didn't exist back then, right? But then over time, we tweaked the profitability number and, the, and then automatically the leaders we were hiring had these numbers already there, so we don't need to approve and discuss budgets and whatnot. But why was this important? Because this automatically assigned a value, which within marketing would then go to the subgroup, which is advertising, right? So that number automatically grew month on month, and we knew we just had to spend this. It had to be done. And we didn't overthink attribution on that because, again, going back to the very beginning of where we started from, we know, right, that we would have someone using Hotjar who has a mom and pop shop, right? But their cousin is the CMO in an enterprise business. How do you measure that? How do you attribute that? So with this big goal that we had of becoming the winner in the market, we looked at attribution on a more global level, not on a campaign level. Having said that, on a campaign level, we just look at are the signups coming in or not, right? So we wouldn't obsess too much about the quality of the signup. What does that mean? If we run a campaign and we're just getting no interaction at all, right? No one's creating a Hodger account. We know it's inherently bad, right? It's like it's the ad is not working, the channel is not working, it's the wrong audience. But as long as we're getting those good numbers on signups, we didn't care because we wanted to build the foundations of that. But then there was also something else that was happening at this time, right? So what we didn't realize is that initial campaign that we did where we told people, write a blog post, email people. What had happened was we had an army of people that had written on Quora, blog posts, like everywhere with all these backlinks. And then another thing that happened was that we had feedback tools within the product group. And each survey that was running on a website was a backlink again to Hotjar. So we just had, we started to build so much domain authority, and this was always our strategy, that then was quite late for us, right? We did kind of the opposite of what everyone was saying. So we started content then. <laughs> but we were starting off with a domain which was as strong as hubspot.com nearly, you know what I mean? Which is crazy. And we're still lagging behind on content. But that was, that was great, like from a marketing flywheel point of view, right? It was where things build upon each other. Yeah, and there's so much to your story. If we and I didn't have a hard stop in ten minutes, I, w- I would. I want to keep going on it, but I do want to. I want to make sure we cover your exit because I think not only do you and I share some, we shared some thoughts about it before we started recording. Just the agony and the you know the stress of that uh, of what an exit can feel like. But it's just such a, I don't know. It's such a nice cherry on on top of this incredible business that you built. I think a big question I have is if you bootstrap this, five founders, 170 employees, 40 million in ARR, what made you decide to sell? Why not keep running it? I think we're going to need another hour then with that question. I'm joking. Um, (laughs) I did a whole talk on why I decided to sell Drip. (laughs) Yeah. Look, the best way that I can summarize it, because I agonized over this 
for a very long time. And as you know, and you mentioned it, it's horrible, right? Because this is something you need to keep as a secret. So it's something you want to speak to people about, but you, you cannot. So that's so it becomes a very internalized debate. I think the best way to summarize it is logically, I knew we had to do this. Everything from a logical standpoint made sense. And I can we can discuss what that looks like, how we built up the logic. But from a heart standpoint, like it felt wrong in every way. And I think a little bit of it because like we built Hodja with a lot of soul and love and care. And that kind of felt like the whole selling out piece, which I now realize is absolutely wrong, right? Because if we look back at the beginning of this journey, we shifted away from selling our time to building equity, right? To building a product, to building something. And I think intrinsically, if something cannot be sold, then it doesn't have value, right? So I think it always has to be on the table. And we were always honest with the team. We're not actively looking to sell. We're not actively looking to go public. This is a private business that would be profitable and sustainable that lives to our vision and cause. But if the right offer, if the right thing comes across, we will definitely consider it. We always said this. And this was definitely a case of this was something interesting, right? So let's kind of break that apart. So first off, I was, I think, in a personal space, I was in a tough spot, right? So quite honestly, I wasn't enjoying being a CEO at 170 people. Like it wasn't what I wanted to do. We spoke about me being, a, I am a product designer. Right? That is my background, like and I'm with a slash, a bit, bit, a bit of marketing in there. So I'm a creative and I think when we reached that size, I wasn't enjoying, it was very clear what had to be done, but I wasn't enjoying doing that work. And I, again, another book I read, which was The Great CEO Within, which talks about eliminate the things that don't give you energy and do more of the things that give you energy. And so part of why I felt very tired was also with no investors, there was no board, right? So I was, <laughs> I'm chairman, company secretary, board member, CEO, shareholder, right? The whole thing. And I started to realize actually, I can make this more fun if I am the board and the chairman looking at where we take this company. And I read the story of Patagonia, Let My People Go Surfing, another great book. This sounds much more what is kind of a good match for my soul. So I was very lucky to find amazing leadership people to join the company, one of which is Mohanad, who's our CEO today. And we started working on this transition where I would become the chairman, he would become the CEO. With this pretty much completed, but not public yet, because as a remote business, we had to incorporate in different countries to make this happen. So it was crazy. Content Square had already spoke to us quite a few times, approached us again. Right? And this time it was serious. They were planning to raise a big round. This was early in 2020, 2021. But again, like it was an immediate no, right? It was immediate no, no, no. Like there's so much going on. Like we have a plan. Like we're building this out. We now have a just cause. Like we took something out of Simon Sinek's book about just cause. So it was felt very exciting. It was a good time. But as the months progressed and as the number, like the, the numbers started coming in, right? Actual offers. When we start to look at, okay, there's a similar philosophy, there's a similar kind of ethos to how they're building the product and their vision of the future of what this would look like. They've agreed to keep the business separate, right? That wouldn't impact our team. So the team is not going to get screwed over. Our customers, like they don't want to change anything. If anything, they want to learn from us, right? It's not this is a takeover to take over the data or the product and all that stuff. So those are done. Those were the very big things. But then we also started to crunch the numbers. We created what was called a loyalty program for the team, right? So we said, although we're not planning 
to sell, although we're not planning to go public, in the event that this happens, percentage of the company's uh, price would be distributed to the team in the form of bonuses. So when we put this, like we started to think, okay, I would never be the CEO of going public, but maybe Mo would want to, right? So we started to visualize all these different outcomes. And when you start to look at the price they were giving us and the likelihood of other outcomes happening, this was just a no-brainer. Everyone would come out as a winner. And then on, on the back of it, Hardware was facing some challenges to invest faster in technology, to invest faster in the product. There was a lot still happening, a lot of businesses like forming partnerships and acquiring each other, right? So it's very clear that industry is coming towards this consolidation that is happening, right? So it felt just, it just made so much sense for us to do it with them. There was the previous relationship, the history, European. So they also had the bootstrap history as well. So, but then they raised, so they, it just made so much sense logically. Yeah, a lot changes when you look at a piece of paper that has several commas in that number. I remember everything was hypothetical for me until I got a first offer letter. I think it was probably a letter, an LOI. And I was like, wow, that is literally millions of dollars that could be in my bank account if we, just, if we sign this thing. And when it goes from theoretical to practical to reality staring in the face, a lot changes. And there is some soul searching goes on, you know? And I think, you know, you know, I've referenced my talk, MicroConf talk, 11 years to overnight success, where I talk through, that's on YouTube if folks want to check it out, where I talk through my thought process of doing that. And it was, it was complicated. It was not a no brainer to, to do this stuff. It was, for us, it was 11 months from first conversation to close. For you, it sounds like it, was it a couple years well, no, not really, actually. It was months from, let's say, getting serious to actually closing. But as I said, there was a relationship that spanned years, more of inbound interest that we never took seriously, <laughs> funnily enough. So it was always like, yeah, whatever kind of thing. But it was, it, was, it was fun, though, because I also developed a relationship with the other CEO and we talk about challenges and things. So, so yeah. No, I, look, I'd say from a money standpoint, Hardware was incredibly profitable. So we even did a dividend, right? So to be quite honest, I felt already quite financially independent. I knew that I was good. But to be honest, there was also a little bit pressure I was feeling from the co-founders who I think were getting tired of all this. <laughs> there was many 80-hour week, weeks being done, right? So they were kind of starting to question, listen, what's going to happen here? There was also members of the team thinking, where is this going? Where is this taking us? So yeah, I think the fact that Content Square had even more ambitious, bigger plans, I think part of it to me was actually more making this less about David as a founder because it was becoming that. And I didn't like that, the pressure and the, the weight on me and making it more about kind of uh, this movement. And, and to be honest, this was a very big thing that I spoke to them about, which is we showed them our just cause, which was quite bold. And I said, this has to be about just cause. We talked about uh, building a just cause together. We talked about building a B Corp or becoming a B Corp in the, in the future, what it would take to go public potentially together to make this a long lasting business, right? That was another of the objectives that we had that I had listed when I started Hodger. So this was also selfishly, I think, to be honest, it was obviously there's the money, right? Because 
the money when you start looking at this. I never, not only do I never need to worry about this, but my kids and possibly even their kids, right? So that's that's huge. And my sister and my, and all that. But I think selfishly it was less about the money and more about removing that weight from my shoulders, which had come to be a little bit too much for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, David, I think you and I could honestly talk for hours and we should we need to get together in person here in the next year once the once the veil of covid has lift has lifted if folks want to keep up with you you are david darminen it's just your first and last name on twitter and of course hotjar.com if they want to see what you're working on thanks again sir thanks for joining me thank you again absolute pleasure hopefully now that you've listened to that you understand what i was saying at the beginning of the show just David's approach to things, his mental models, just the, the sheer intelligence and, and execution just emanating from him is, is really just so inspiring to me. So I want to thank David for coming on the show. I would not be surprised if he were on future episodes of Start With The Rest Of Us, and I do um, hope to be able to meet up with him at some point. Thanks for joining me again this week. If you enjoy the show and you want to do me just a small favor, five-star review and whatever podcatcher you use would be amazing. And with that, I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.